the kind of uh, love that Moses had where he was willing to die and the kind of love that Paul had where he was willing to go to hell and neither of them did either. I can tell you of a person who did both. Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Recently, we've begun looking at chapter 9 of the book of Romans. In the first three verses, the Apostle Paul talks about the love that both he and God have for the Jews. He makes a statement about this love, saying that if it were possible, he would give up his position in heaven for the sake of the Jews. Although this is in no way possible, the Apostle emphasizes his sincerity by saying that his conscience bears witness. Which brings us up to our starting point. Pastor Brogy spent some time looking at different types of consciences men possess, and as he picks up today, he looks at a good conscience. Isaiah warned of this. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There are some people who are so warped in their consciences that they cannot tell the difference between right and wrong. And most of those people you really want in prison. It's kind of scary when you think about it, that this is the kind of conscience especially that men will display more and more as we move into the last of the last days. But there's a fourth kind of conscience that is described in the New Testament. It's a regenerated conscience. and It's what we might call a good conscience. Paul, in describing his life from his conversion, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. When he writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he said, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here in Romans 9, Paul is calling on the second witness. First, he calls on the Lord Jesus. Then he calls on his conscience, which is a good conscience. And then to add strength, he calls a third witness, God the Holy Spirit. Again here in verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me. How? In the Holy Spirit. Christ witnesses that I am telling the truth. My conscience witnesses that I am telling the truth. And my conscience bears witness with a third witness and that my conscience is under the influence of God the Holy Spirit and he knows that I am telling the truth. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a sincere, genuine compassion and passion for those who are lost? Now, if I were to bring up On this platform, those who are listening to my voice today, those who name the name of Christ, those who say they are born again, probably my guess is most of them would say yes. But I am afraid that many of those who would say yes, in the back of their conscience, as it is influenced by God the Holy Spirit, there would be a twinge of conviction. That's not Paul's case. And so we can say outwardly yes, But our conscience would say, then why don't you witness more? Why don't you speak up more often for Jesus Christ? When was the last time you made a sincere effort to bring someone into the kingdom of God? 
Why don't you try to invite people to church and to other evangelistic outreaches that we have? Why don't you memorize this scripture that will make you more effective as a witness? Why are you so afraid of what people will think? Why are you so scared of failure? Why don't you pray more and agonize more over those people you know are lost? Why, 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 why? And your conscience might say something different from what you say with your lips. And so if our consciences were called up on this platform, what would our consciences say? Well, Paul can say, I'm telling the truth in Christ. Now, some of us love church work, but we really don't have a passion for the lost. And there's a decision we need to make. Much like Elijah, who called the people in his day to a point of decision where he will ask, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? You say, Pastor, but I can't make myself love people. I can't work up this feeling to have a passion for the lost. You're right. You will never work it up in yourself because this kind of compassion comes from God. And so the starting place for some of us is to admit to God that we don't want to have it. Tell him. Tell him that you want him to do a new work, a brand new work in your life, giving you a fresh passion for those that know Christ. In John chapter 21, if you remember... When the Lord Jesus had that conversation with Peter, and I did a number of sermons and messages, and I didn't just randomly pick them out of the air. I picked messages that would lay the foundation for what we're going to study in 9 through 11. And if you remember, one came from John 21, and Jesus did not ask Peter, Peter, do you love feeding sheep? He asked Peter, do you love me? Because if you are in love with Christ, you are in love with the things that Christ loves. And when he gave a simple purpose statement of why he left heaven and came to earth, he said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And not only did he state that purpose of himself, he commissioned us in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Now remember, in a local church is the composite of all of its individual members. And so don't ask about the person next to you. Just ask about yourself as I've asked myself this week. If everyone in this church were just like me, what would this church be like? And then apply that into the realm of evangelism. If everyone had the kind of passion as seen in what I do, if everyone had the same kind of passion that I have, then how successful would we be as a church? Listen, there is no reason why everyone in this room who names the name of Christ could not believe God for at least one single person to come into the kingdom of God in the next year. I believe that can happen. You will never convince me that if the members of this church were as concerned as much as Paul was about the lost, that we wouldn't see God do even more in this place. But you see, what has happened in America today, what was basic Christianity in the first century, has become an anomaly in our day. And we wonder why America is going down the spiritual tubes. And we're looking for some political solution, some political savior, when the answer is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's Paul. He has a sincere concern. Secondly, I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul had a steadfast determination. Again, we read here in verse 2, 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so in verse 1, he described the reality of of his sincerity. And in verse 2, he describes the intensity of his sincerity. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. You could translate the Greek, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, I realize that whenever I preach a sermon like this, that for many of you, no sooner will you leave this place and out of the sound of my voice and the voice of Holy Scripture that we are examining, that while for a few minutes in here, God may speak to you, within a matter of hours, you will forget virtually everything that you heard. You will be in your Facebook, you'll be in your social medias, you'll be talking to people on the phone, you'll be doing a host of things, but you will forget what I have said, and this sermon will make absolutely no difference in your life. I'll be a little bit guilty while I'm here, but then it will be quickly dismissed. But when Paul describes his sorrow, he describes it as an unceasing grief. The King James has a continual grief. Another translation says an unending grief. Another says a constant grief. Still another, an uninterrupted grief. That's what the word means. It is steadfast. It is determinative. It will not stop right out next to verse 2. Would you Acts 20.31? Acts 20.31. Let me read it to you. Paul had gathered the Ephesian elders on a beach, and it's the last time he's ever going to see them. And he says, therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Earlier in that discourse, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul reminds the Ephesian leadership that he didn't share his faith for just three weeks but for three years. And then as we studied last week, and again, I chose that text for a reason, Paul, when he comes to the end of his life, is able to affirm he did this his whole life. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. So here in Acts 20 and verse 31, he says, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Sometimes when Paul preached, he preached with tears. Where are the tears? Where are the broken hearts of our day? A true concern for the loss. Now, some of us don't cry easy. I don't cry easy. But I have found myself crying over people whom I love, over whom I am broken for concerning their salvation. And I know we're all wired differently emotionally, and I respect that. But whether you are a tearful person or not, I know that God cannot bless in this place the way he wants until we are a broken people, until we have the kind of concern and the kind of compassion and the kind of steadfast determination that this apostle had. And as I'm speaking, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, that's why we pay you. We pay you to win the loss for us. We just come here to listen to you preach. And when I'm speaking, some of you are reasoning, don't make me feel guilty, Pastor. This is not my thing. This is not my calling. This is not my gift. And maybe you had some pastor in the past who taught you that, and he hid behind that excuse because he didn't want to share his faith. 
Listen, it may not be your gift, but it is the common responsibility of every child of God. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Literally, as you go, make disciples. As you go where? As you go everywhere you go. As you go who? As you go everywhere you go, make disciples of all nations. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, if that's what Christ is about, that is what we are to be about. In his second letter to Timothy, he said this in the fourth chapter. We read it last week. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul knew that Timothy's primary area of giftedness was not in evangelism, but as a pastor teacher. And so here at the end of his life, in his last will and testament, he challenges him to do the work of an evangelist. And again, I think Paul wants him to have that. He wants him to be gripped with that truth because he knows it would be so easy for him to get caught up in so many pastoral issues that he would miss the responsibility that God has called each and every Christian to. It doesn't matter about your gifting. Some of you here this morning are gifted with the gift of serving, others with the gift of mercy, others with the gift of administration, others with the gift of teaching, and you are able more proficiently, more consistently, more passionately, because God gifted you in that area to do those things. But if you look at all the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, without exception, there are other passages that describe those gifts as common responsibilities and events. Evangelism is no different. And so all of us are to be witnesses. You say, but I'm afraid. I'm nervous. Fantastic. I love that because God doesn't like cocky people. He gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. You say, I don't feel equipped. I don't feel trained. I haven't been through a course on evangelism. There's one online right now. I did it. I've taught it many times in this church on a Wednesday night. Hey, listen, understand the early church. They had no printed literature. No one owned a copy of a Bible. But they shared their faith. You say, well, I'm not sure what I would say. Well, if you've been saved, then you know what to say. If you've been saved, you know the plan of salvation. If you don't know the plan of salvation, then you can't say you're saved because you can't believe something you've never heard. But if you know the plan of salvation, then you ought to start there. You say, well, how do they do it? They memorize scripture. You say, but I can't memorize scripture. You will never make me believe that. If I gave you a thousand dollars for every verse of scripture you memorized, you would become a memorizing machine for the Bible. Listen, it's an issue of desire. It's an issue of priority. It is an issue of what is important to you. So Paul had a sincere concern. He had a steadfast determination. He was in it for the long haul all the way to the end. Third, the apostle Paul had a sacrificial love. Again, in verse 1, he describes the reality of his passion. In verse 2, the sincerity of his passion. And now in verse 3, the sacrifice of his passion. Look what it says. He said, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You understand what he's saying? He's not exaggerating. He's not lying. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Paul says, I wish if it were possible 
that I could go to hell so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could go to heaven. Now, I recognize he is speaking emotionally under the inspiration of the Spirit and not just theologically, because he just taught us at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can sever, sever us from the love of Christ, that it is absolutely impossible to lose your salvation. And even if it were possible to lose your salvation, that someone else might go to hell so that you would go to heaven is impossible because no one else can make a decision for you. You're the only one who can make that decision. But the Apostle Paul felt so deeply about it that he said, under the inspiration of God, if it were possible, I would go to hell. That's how much I love these people, that they might go to heaven. Now, people have softened these verses they say, they say, well, Paul wasn't really talking about going to hell. He was talking about excommunication. No, he uses the strongest word possible in the New Testament in which, has, in which it has only one definition, the word anathema. It's the same word that he uses in Galatians 1 of false teachers. He said, if someone comes into the church and he preaches a gospel contrary to the one which you have received, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Same word as here. It is a word that means dedicated to divine wrath and destruction. Paul said, I would welcome divine condemnation if it could make a difference for my Jewish brethren to be reconciled. Moses had a very similar disposition, if you remember, in Exodus 32. He goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He comes down and he hears the revelry of the people. They have hammered together a golden calf. They are involved in sexual immorality and idolatry. And they take that golden calf and they say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. And Moses comes down and he sees this. And God says to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, a great nation. And so Moses, the man of God, he falls on his face before God, and he is willing to pay the ultimate price. He said, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me from your book which you have written. He cares so deeply for his own people. He says, please forgive their sin. But if you cannot forgive your sin, their sin, then take my life. And he's not talking about the Lamb's book of life like Paul describes in Philippians or John does in the Revelation. But what the Old Testament refers to is the book of the living. Take my life out of the book of the living. Destroy my life, but spare these people. Here, Paul, he takes it a step further. He is so filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, Lord, I don't want you just to take my life and bring early death. I am willing to go to hell if these people can meet the Lord. Now, I know, again, some people who will read this and say, well, that's a safe thing for Paul to say. He knows it's an impossibility and he is just blowing smoke. No, he has called three witnesses to this stand. God the Son, his own conscience, which is a good conscience, and God the Holy Spirit who is activating that conscience. Now understand, Paul is not just talking about dying for someone else. History is filled with illustrations of people who would be willing to sacrifice their life for someone else. He's talking about willing to go to hell for someone else. I can't say that I've ever had that kind of love for a lost person, that I would be willing to go to hell for them. 
Maybe I could come to that conclusion over some people I deeply love and care for, some close relative. But certainly, I don't think I could say that of people who hated me because the Jews hated Paul. They sought to kill Paul. They sought to destroy Paul. They tried to stone him to death. I'm just being honest. I don't think I've ever loved and had that kind of deep passion like Paul has. But I think I know something about the spirit of sacrifice. And each of us can sacrifice. And so we can take this out of the realm of theory and put it into shoe leather. I see it every week with some of you, some this morning, dozens are working with little children in the nursery, and they see it as an honor to take care of your kids. And they're over there because they want some of our visitors, maybe some who have never heard the claims of Jesus Christ before, to be able to come in here so that they can, in an undistracted way, hear about the gospel. I see it every week with people who are out in our parking lot ministry, whether it's raining, whether it's cold, whether it's hot, they're out there trying to organize that parking lot and make it work so that people can come in. I see it in our members who are willing to take the worst spots, walk as far as they can possibly walk to leave the best spots for our visitors who come. I see it every week with people who are behind the scenes working the cameras and the sound this morning. I see it every week with those who sacrificially tithe to the Lord's work that we can take the gospel around the world. I see it in our VBS workers every year. I see it on Sunday nights when hundreds of us are home relaxing and taking it easy and there are people who come week after week after week after week after week and they serve our children that their children and others children and visitors' children might hear the gospel. And so while we may not have the same kind of sacrificial spirit that Paul has, we need to simply ask, do I have a spirit of sacrifice? And I believe that when the people of Community Bible Church says Pentecost at any cost, the spirit who's come down as he sends us out, we are going to have a far greater impact than we have ever had. I want to leave you with a challenge this morning, just a simple challenge. Can you believe God in the next 12 months? This is January between now and next January. Because of your sincere concern, because of your steadfast determination, and because of your sacrificial love, can you believe God for just one person to come into the kingdom of God? Now, I know we've only cracked the door in the ninth chapter, but again, what I find so profound about his introduction to this chapter is ever before he gets into the deep theology of it all, he talks about his deep love. He opens up his heart for us. As I read Paul this week, I was also reading the prophet Jeremiah, and I couldn't separate the two because they were so alike. And in Jeremiah 9, I read... The prophet said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for my people. When was the last time you were grieved over sin? When was the last time you were grieved over someone who was lost, captive and bound by the devil and headed for an eternal destiny without Jesus Christ? Do you have that passion? I see Christians all the time who are passionate about everything. They're passionate about their favorite sports teams. When I would go to Aiken, I would always meet this couple, and they were always passionate trying to sell me vitamins. 
I see people who are passionate about the latest technology that is in their hands. But are you passionate about Jesus Christ in doing what he came to do, and that's winning the lost? Now, it's not hard to discern what a person is passionate about. Because when you hang around with them, after a while it comes out because the mouth speaks what's in the heart. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. So what are you passionate about? Think about your own words this week. Were there any words? A single word towards bringing someone into the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't have an inkling about the kind of sacrificial love that we've talked about, the kind of uh, love that Moses had where he was willing to die, and the kind of love that Paul had where he was willing to go to hell, and neither of them did either. I can tell you of a person who did both. Jesus Christ. He died for you, and he paid your hell for you as an infinite person in a finite period of time. He paid the eternal wrath of God so that you could have a relationship, that you could become a member of a royal priesthood, that you who are not my people are now my people, and that you can become one who worships the living God. And if you've never received him, I invite you to do so today. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the things that we have read and studied this hour. And I pray today for someone who is here who does not have assurance of salvation. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you that whoever, whatever they've been like, whatever they have done because of what Jesus did on his cross, whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone today to take you at your word that you cannot lie, that you will do what you promised, that if they will believe in the Lord Jesus and his substitutionary death and resurrection, that you will forgive them of all their sin. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, some of us, we're like the church in Ephesus. We have lost our first love. And our hearts have grown cold and stale. And we used to try to win people to Jesus. We used to try to invite people. We used to be involved in the Great Commission. But those things no longer concern us. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that in your grace, today can be the first day of the rest of our lives. Father, I, I pray that there would be hundreds here today who in faith, knowing that you wish none to perish, but for all to come to repentance, pleading the promises of Holy Scripture, I pray that there would be hundreds here today who would believe you for just one person that they could be involved in and bringing into the kingdom of God. Thank you for the faithfulness of that individual, that pastor, that mother, that father, that Sunday school teacher, that Awana leader, whatever the situation might have been, who cared enough for our soul to tell us the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that person is alive today, bless them. Continue to use them. But we ask that you would use us, and we ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
to listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 9 entitled, A Passion for the Lost, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app or podcast available for smartphones and tablets. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ROM43. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more from Audrey by tuning into her Rare But Real podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. When we return Monday, we'll begin our look at the privileges of Israel. Join us then as we search the scriptures. 